Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Okay, we've had a problem here. This is Houston, say again, please. All right, Houston, we've had a problem. Welcome to Space Junk. My name is Annie Hanmer and I study international space cooperation, space treaties and space debris at the University of Sydney's School of History and Philosophy of Science. Stephen Freeland is one of Australia's leading international lawyers and the Dean of Law at Western Sydney University. He has published countless works on the subject of international space law and represents Australia at international space meetings. Stephen and I recorded this podcast over cups of tea and cookies and had such a fascinating, wide-ranging and philosophical conversation that it took me a few days to get my brain to slow down enough to remember to upload it. I hope you enjoy listening. Stephen has nominated Wagner's Ride of the Valkyries to begin and end this podcast. This version is performed by the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Daniel Barenboim at the Berlin State Opera House in 1998. Enjoy. I'm sitting down with Professor Stephen Freeland, who is the Dean of Law at Western Sydney University. Stephen, it's lovely to talk to you. Thank you for agreeing to make time to chat about space today. It's my pleasure and thank you for bringing cookies along for us to eat while we chat. Uh, And to your listeners, they are great. So Stephen, you are, I think be fair to say, perhaps Australia's most famous space lawyer. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit about what it is that you do as a space lawyer and then in the rest of your life as well, what, what is it that you do? Um, well, thank you firstly for that uh, introduction. Um, there's probably a few other people around who might contest that, but uh, that's okay, there, there are not many people around. So um, 
If you walk down the street and you ask people about space, um, maybe it's changing a bit now, but they would their, their conception of what you're talking about would be limited to perhaps planets and aliens and rockets and things like that. But when you then sit them down, as I'm sure you have with many of your friends, and spoken to them about how we utilise space every day. So it's ubiquitous in our lives. We use it so many ways every day. Uh, that gets people thinking about, well, there must be something to this. And then when you interplay above that uh, all of the elements of space, how it's an incredibly large commercial space, how it's incredibly large from a scientific viewpoint, um, and of course, as you dive down even more, uh, how it's a reflection of humanity and, our, and, and how we look going forward. It's a militarised space or used for military purposes. Uh, it's for exploration, it's strategic, it's economic, it's cultural. It's so many things. And then you begin to realise that uh, whatever happens in space has impacts on so many people let alone economies and communities and countries. And because of that, it's necessary to have some rules of the road. So if you drill down like that, quite quickly you'll come up with a conclusion that you need to have some law to drive all of this. So space lawyers, if you like, are uh, involved in interpreting, applying, making suggestions about future development of the rules that guide all of these activities in space. So that sounds simple, but it's quite complex because we do so many things in space and as I've said, space is so multifaceted anyway. So what I do is um, I have the, the privilege of teaching so I teach space law to students, and I've been doing that for a long time. There have probably been about uh, two or 3,000 students of mine in the last 20 years who have studied space law all around the world. I uh, consult, I work with industries more and more uh, who are engaged in some form of space activity upstream or downstream and are interested in the regulatory frameworks. I work with governments, I had the privilege of working for the Australian government to, in a couple of ways, to help in the reform of the, our domestic space law, to help in the drafting of uh, documents that ultimately led to the establishment of the Space Agency and uh, represent Australia as part of the Australian delegation at UN meetings on space. And then I work with the United Nations and the international community uh, looking at the future, looking at the developments in technology, what they mean for what we can do in space, and even though the law will never, ever, ever keep up with developments in technology, and in my view, neither should it, because the technology continually changes, and law is hard to change once you have established it. Uh, but looking at how in the future for the benefit of all of us and to maximise what incredible things space can give to us, how we should develop um, regulatory rules of the road, uh, frameworks, binding treaties perhaps, guidelines, codes of practice, really trying to develop 
responsible behaviour in space. And by and large, despite some errors, we've been reasonably responsible in space. Uh, space has worked over the last 60 years. But there are some real challenges, and no doubt we'll talk a bit about that over the next few minutes. So to take a step back for listeners who are not necessarily familiar with space law as a concept even, can we start with what is international law and how would you say it differs from domestic law that we'd be more more familiar with? Sure. Um, So generally when you look at law, um, you can look at different levels of law although not every country does this. But in Australia, for example, we essentially have a dualistic approach. We look at two different levels of law. So there's a layer of law that uh, we call international law. And uh, even though it's much more than this, what I simplistically say is it's law made by countries. We call countries states at international law. So law law made by states for states. So uh, as the world became increasingly more international and then using later nomenclature globalised due to developments in technology, countries had to deal with each other more and more. And uh, to deal with each other, even if you didn't like each other, you had to establish rules of the road as to how your behaviour would be towards each other. So international law drives those relationships. International law as we know it really began uh, in the 15th and 16th centuries with the development of technology. I mean law really is a a reactor to technology and certainly in the international space and in that case it was the development of shipping technology uh, particularly from Northern Europe Uh, So you had the Dutch and the British and the French and the Portuguese and the Spanish beginning to go literally outside of their domains. Um, And laws had to begun to be developed so as to work out the relationships. And, of course, that's a very simplistic start, but it gave rise to some really fundamental principles that we even now adhere to, which is a respect for equality of countries, not in a practical sense because there are powerful countries and less powerful but in a legal sense there's a sovereign equality a respect for territory and the jurisdiction that countries have over their territory and their and their um, vessels and now rockets of course satellites Uh, so international law is that relationship at the international level between countries national law domestic law which you also asked about is a different is on a different plane and that's the law that countries themselves pass in accordance with their own parliamentary processes and constitution that dictates a different relationship, a relationship between the state, the country, and its own people. And so that is a, if you like, a vertical relationship, whereas, uh, and it doesn't typically, although different people have different theories about this, but it typically doesn't intersect directly with this horizontal relationship of the relationship between countries where there's that international law. But clearly there are overlaps. There are overlaps in content. There are overlaps in concepts about uh, the nature of law. I mean, law is to be respected and and looked at in a binding way. But typically in countries like Australia, 
and so most countries with this, as I call it, dualistic view. So Australia would have all these relationships at the international level based on, let's say, treaties, which are very relevant for the idea of space. There are a lot of space treaties. All these relationships Australia would have with all these other countries, giving rise to rights and obligations for Australia. And then Australia would choose how it wants to translate that into the way that it uh, regulates the activities of those within its jurisdiction under its national law. So, for example, space law, and Australia is a party to the relevant instruments, space law creates obligations on countries essentially to encourage responsible behaviour in space by its citizens uh, in the way that it supervises their activities. And then countries like Australia then pass domestic law where they set out a framework for its citizens to comply with in their space activities. Something I find very interesting about international law as opposed to domestic law is that it's a real opt-in system. So there's a difference there in the way that countries can choose to form rules and regulations by which they will all be held for presumably some sort of common good rather than there being a higher body or a higher court to which they are held. With the exception, I understand, in international law of certain principles, there is this, certain, yeah. there is this general sense that uh, international law has only the power that people choose to give it or that decision makers choose to give it. Would you agree with that? Yeah, that's a, that's a really astute observation. Uh, um, I'd probably put it slightly differently, but I, but I think we reach the same conclusion. So think of it this way. As I said, um, international law governs the relationship between states. Um, in the beginning, it was about commerce and trade, and it still is, of course. Mm. But over time, uh, and over time, um, it's about so many things. And to a certain degree, the rights and obligations that states have under international law somehow might restrict the way that they can regulate you when you're born. So. Mm the area of human rights law is often quoted as, as the example. So there are some international human rights standards, countries are bound by that and therefore they can't pass domestic, I mean, they, they pass domestic laws which say they can torture you or something, but that's clearly something that international law would say is wrong and it so therefore impinges on their, their ability to do that because the way the world works is it's still based on this territorial notion that states are within their territory omnipotent. And international law, I always say what international law is, you know, I draw a picture of Pac-Man on the board and we all remember these, the idea of Pac-Man coming along and eating, eating things. Uh, I remember a washing powder ad when I was young about washing powder and this Pac-Man eating all the globs of dirt. And I draw Pac-Man and then I write the word sovereignty. And for me, international law is Pac-Man eating up this notion of sovereignty, which was born in the 1500s and 1600s, and at that time said, we can do whatever we want, whatever we want within our territory to those citizens like you. Mm. And s over time, international law says, well, you still have, you are still the, the power in your territory, but there are certain standards that international law will impose on you. 
And so that's what international law is doing. It's eating up sovereignty and, in a sense, if you'll pardon the analogy, spitting it out in a different way, redefining sovereignty. And mm. so what does that mean? States typically don't like international law. It is a perception that it's an interference in what they can do. They love the idea of doing whatever they want within their own territory. It's an interference, it's an imposition of standards. It gives rise, as you said, to some accountability. And therefore, they're suspicious of international law. Therefore, remember what I said, it's law made by states for states. So it was initially conceived by states that we don't like this thing, but we need it because mm. we've got to deal with people. We've got to have rules on the road. We want to make money. We want to trade. We want to conquer. We want to have wars, whatever. We need to have some rules to govern that. We're suspicious of international law, and therefore we will construct this regime in a way that we can pick and choose what we're bound by, which is the point you're making. And that was, in a sense, the original, and for many still, the major premise upon which, it, upon which international law is based. I would say, though, that whilst that's still important, because states can choose which treaties they sign up to, international law has become more and more prevailing. And there are certain concepts you referred to it yourself, but I think it's broader than just notions of thou shalt not commit genocide and thou shalt not torture, I mean, which are incredibly important, don't get me wrong. But I think international law is pervading now more and more such that states, even if they don't like it, have some sense of obligation under it. So they can't pick and choose exactly what they want now. You could think about international law as a kind of system of ethics or morals which exert some influence over individual decisions. People have rights to behave as they wish to behave, but that those rights are curtailed in the way that they affect others. And there are legal ways that that happens, but there are also forces that are socially constructed within society around ethics and morality that determine how we treat each other. That obviously gets disrupted to a degree if someone comes along who has a different view of things and dare I say America first then you have a challenge set up and the question is to what extent is international law equipped to deal with someone who chooses not to play by its rules? Again, I mean, you, you, that's a really perceptive observation. Um, you started off by saying international law, um, maybe you could extend that as an argument to law in general, but you said international law is a reflection of ethics and morality. I think we wish it was, but law, I mean, law at the domestic level, let alone the international level, is not necessarily a reflection. You would hope it's a reflection of the greater societal values and those values reflect what we would regard as moralistic values, ethical values, but my morals and ethics will perhaps be different from your moral and ethics, morals and ethics. And so it's very difficult to say that law always will be a, a reflection of morals and ethics. And in fact, again, as much as we would like that to be the case, mm. that's a trap for young players to a certain degree to think yeah. that. And at the international level, it's even harder because 
once we have this international system, once we realise, notwithstanding what I said before about states being suspicious of international law, the system they create um, encourages to inclusiveness. Mm. So we would much rather have countries we don't necessarily like, but more and more countries involved in a regime, because there are then rules of the road. But of course, to encourage greater inclusiveness, compromises are made. And so to international law can never be a reflection of, you know, except in cases like thou shalt not commit genocide, you know, obvious mm. cases, but international law is about so many things. It can never be a reflection of uh, a, a all-pervasive culture or set of values or morals because the world is so diverse mm. and yet we want inclusiveness. So, therefore, the legal system that we have, you know, I often give lectures to first-year students about international law and my last lecture, the revision lecture before the exam, that's when they all come, um, <laughs> is just two slides. The strengths of international law and the weaknesses of international law. And <clears throat> the strengths and the weaknesses are often the same thing. And one of them is the flexibility, the, the grey areas. So people, when you talk to political scientists, they say, well, international law is nothing. United States or Russia or China or, or anyone can do whatever they want and there's no legal sanctions. That's incorrect. But the, on the other hand, there's not necessarily one answer. We were talking before this podcast, you, you were saying about science. Mm. Science not have, being definitive in the answer. Well, international law is not necessarily definitive. A lot of it is interpretive. Mm. But it works. It, it gives us a shared platform exactly. on which to have a conversation we can understand each other on. Exactly. And it provides so, commensurability between potentially divergent what we might call thought Absolutely. collectives or ways of thinking. Absolutely. And if you have flexibility, mm. again, that's a, a weakness because there's some uncertainty, there's wiggle room, there's grey areas, but it's also a plus because it does allow for some shift. I'm not saying there aren't clear principles. There clearly are. Mm. But there perhaps are different ways of interpreting. But when you think about it, again, another, another thing that people are quick to judge international law because they... International law works brilliantly 95.6237% of the time, right? It's the difficult, whatever it is, 4.123% that's in the newspapers, that's on the news. Mm. That perhaps is a reflection of when countries want to beat each other up or colonise or something. You know, the really difficult issues. There we struggle because these vested interests and these different ideas of culture and history and so many issues mean that we're going to have different ideas about that. But by and large, uh, the system works. Yes. By and large, the system works. There are so many things that you and I can do seamlessly that only we can only do because of international law. So it's easy to be critical, mm. and there are many things to criticise. But as a system, notwithstanding the suspicions that states have, and notwithstanding the cynicism that individuals have, it actually is a system, I mean, I believe in it, with all its flaws, it's a system that brings us to a better place because without that, you really would have 
might is right. I mean, in, in a much more stark way than perhaps we have now. Mm. It's funny. So in my research, I often look at international law as a technology and say that it's a technology that can be invoked or excluded or used by nations in order to justify their behaviour or criticise others' behaviour. So it is really interesting to think about how international law and law itself has changed as we have changed it as, as a society, as travel has brought us closer, as technology has enabled us to become more globalised. And perhaps some of the growing perception of challenge to international law that we've experienced over the last few years and will continue to experience are because the internet and social media and platforms like that, other technologies, are bringing us closer together, causing us to be even more globalised. We saw this in the um, India-Pakistan conflict that was occurring in the last week, that you had people on Twitter from both sides, citizens from both countries, talking to each other on Twitter about it and sort of hashtagging, let's not go to war, or let's go to war, or whatever they felt. That in itself is a remarkable difference from where the world was 50 years ago, um, when a lot of the treaties that we rely on in space, for example, were formed. Do you think that law needs to adapt again and become more complex or there needs to be more of it? Or do you think it's got a strength and that it can be interpreted in different ways, as you yeah. say? I think it's both. I mean, I think law has a great strength. It has an inherent strength for what it is mm. and it has an inherent strength, strength, particularly at the international level, for its adaptability. And so in the space arena, we have, as you said, some fundamental principles that arise initially from the United Nations and then through some treaty instruments that have served us really well, notwithstanding there are some issues, no doubt, and challenges, but have served us really well since Sputnik. And you'll know that I'm a Sputnik baby. So, yes. Uh, yeah, so born in 57. That's right. Um, so it, it, it's interesting to, to see that uh, law does adapt, but it's never going to keep up with technology. It is reactive, as I said before, to technology. It does, however, have a resilience because it, it, it's, if I said to you, and this gets back to your question before about morals and ethics, if I said, Annie, what you did was unethical or immoral, you know, mm. you'd be upset by that, but you would probably could put, live with it because you would say, well, my morals are different to your morals anyway. You're judging me by the standards that I don't adhere to or whatever. But if I said to you, Annie, what you did was illegal, unlawful, you, you wouldn't accept that. You couldn't accept that. That would bite at you mm. uh, in a different way. Law has that inherent strength. So it is at the international level. Mm. That's why the flexibility is important, not to encourage irresponsible behaviour, but when states then are deemed or regarded by a, a broad uh, range of other actors or by courts, if it ever gets to that, to have actually committed an unlawful act, then that has real strength to it. And states always resolve from that. So your point about international law being 
subject to one's own interpretation. Of course it is. Of course it is. And I will read a treaty and you will read a treaty and we might have different interpretations and we might act upon our own interpretations. And that's fine, but if we ever have a dispute on that interpretation mm. and if we both have the political will to try to resolve that dispute in a court of law, then in the end those mechani mechanisms exist. So it gives me the flexibility to act, but it also gives me the obligations towards you and you the rights and obligations with me. And if I go somewhere beyond where you think is acceptable, you do have rights. It, it's a political decision. You know, for mm. Australia to take Japan to the International Court of Justice as it did on the whaling case. Right? Mm. When, when that happened, I wrote a lot of articles about that saying I thought it was a mistake to do that, even though, you know, personally, of course, you know, I think whaling is something that should be completely stopped. But I thought the idea of going to a court and getting a definitive decision on that particular narrow point that Australia was asking about, all that did was open up you know, once you've got that definitive decision, then it allows the other country to take advantage of that by going outside of the scope of that decision. Yes, so you narrow the meaning of the law through exactly. a decision, and exactly. then there's um, opportunities to skirt that law. E exactly, and whereas without that, sure, you don't have the definitive answer that, you, that people strive for when they're doing a mathematics formula, but on the other hand, you've got this ability to sit down and talk to each other. Yes. And, and you have scope to talk to each other. And in the end, international law, state made by states for states, they don't want it to be too strong to threaten themselves. Mm. And, you know, I, I think that's really important. The other point I wanted to make about what you were saying is that, talking about the comment on Twitter. Sure. Um, so I... Um, I had the privilege of working, um, as, uh, as well as doing a lot of space law work, I was privileged to work with the International Criminal Court for quite some years, um, working with some judges at the International Criminal Court and, and in its early days when it was really making some landmark decisions. And the International Criminal Court was established in the late 1990s and it was a reflection of things that were happening that uh, society could no longer accept atrocities. But the, the one point that really pushed society forward was technology, and indeed space technology. Because in the 1990s, we could, for the first time, see the atrocities as they happened mm. because of satellite communication. And therefore, that galvanises us all. You know, you're too young, but I can remember seeing those atrocities. I can remember seeing the um, satellite communication imagery from East Timor before, after the independence vote, but before mm. it became independent. And we saw some of the horrible things that were happening there. And people were crying in the street because they were seeing live these horrible things happening. And, and more and more technology allows us, as you say, to think to be more globalised, even if we sit in our armchair, because we can see things as they happen. Mm. And that gives us a greater voice in wanting change and, and wanting accountability, be it for atrocities or whatever. And that demands law. And so the technology pushes the law 
in that regard, but um, the law also reacts to the technology. It's, it's a two-way street. It's quite interesting, though, but it, you know, technology and space technology uh, has really changed our lives, not just in the way we use space, but the way we think, the mm. way our ability to, uh, to, to comprehend what, and see what things are happening that we would have no other conception about unless it was for this technology. Well, this is why I think it is so irresponsible of people to talk about space as a warfighting domain or to start talking about space force um, or anything to do with weaponizing space because space is not just a place. It also exists on a symbolic level. Absolutely. But it also exists as a vital infrastructure to the way that we live our lives now. So... To talk about having any sort of war fighting occurring in space is almost, to my mind, the equivalent of discussing the possibility of, um, you know, setting off like bomb testing at Warragamba Dam. You'd have to be mad. The whole, the whole of our city depends on that piece of vital infrastructure. And space is just the same. The networks of satellites and... Um, the relative safety from debris, bearing in mind that that is a risk, but one that at the moment is relatively manageable and could very easily not be manageable, means that, to me, it's, it reminds me very much of discussions of mutually assured destruction with nuclear weaponry. So this idea of, you know, well, of course, if you fire it, I fire it. Well, it's the same in space. If you fire something kinetic at something big enough, then you've really messed up space for generations to come. And that is a huge risk. Um, and I think that talking about space as if that's a possibility or something we could even consider within our strategic um, approach to it is it does a great disservice to um, all of the people in the world who rely on it. Completely. I, I couldn't, I agree with every word and you know that, like you, I've been very vocal on this issue and mm. um, there are elements of society that disagree with that view and my, and my view, but I, I think the view that you've expressed so eloquently is exactly the view that we must keep on expressing. Mm. Um, obviously, uh, as I said at the beginning, space has been used for military purposes almost from day one. And, and, and there are historical reasons for that because Sputnik, two months after I was born, I mean, we're in the midst of the Cold War. This technology is um, a development from rocket technology, which was weapons technology in the Second World War. We had two protagonists who happened to be the only two countries who had space capability. Uh, they were staring each other uh, in the eyes. They were having all these hot wars in other places. The technology was, of course, developed for military, with military eyes mm. and strategic eyes and chest-beating eyes, if you know, you know what I mean, to mm. show that not only can we do this, but if we can do this, we want you to think we can do a whole bunch of other things as well. And this space race was strategic and it was military and it was political. Um, so, we understand that space has a military component and indeed wars on Earth involve the use of space technology. It's sad but true. Okay, that's, we, we, it's a given and notwithstanding anything we could say, we can't stop that. 
But it's a totally different dimension, as you say, to then extrapolate from that and say, well, space is just like any other area. And uh, if I choose to fight my war in space, then I'm free to do that because I'm free to fight my wars on land and sea and air and all of that. So, and, and I think you and I agree, uh, although not putting words in your mouth, that, that space is different. Mm. For, and that's not a naive uh, notion. It's different because the, it's a reflection of humanity and it's a function of the way humanity survives and all of the things you've said. But, but the other point is that you're right. As one increases rhetoric on this point, uh, I gave a speech recently overseas where somebody was asking me about Space Force and what did I think and, and I gave a, a rather silly analogy of imagine you have a whole bunch of kids in the room and um, somebody, you, you say to them, let's go outside and play outside with the group next door and little Johnny says yes and Charlotte says that'd be nice and you know but they're all meek and mild and then there's someone in the back who's got the loudest voice in the room going no 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 they're horrible we let's not do it let's not do it and it's the loudest voice in the room but it's only one voice in the room it's only one reflection of the interaction we could have with these children but it's the loudest voice in the room so do you listen to the loudest voice in the room we run the risk if we sit down and, and are, in one sense, seduced by this idea of Star Wars and war in space and weapons and, wow, that's really exciting and sexy and imagine all of that, if we get seduced by that loudest voice in the room, we are ignoring all those other voices. And exactly as you say, space is about so many things. It's about so many extraordinarily good things. The humanity, where we are today, is so much at a higher level, even despite all of the inequities in the world, and there are many, many problems. But we are at a much better place today than we would be without space. Mm. And to threaten that by this loud voice in the room, and I'm not pointing to one country because all of the major countries um, are looking at space with increasingly militaristic eyes in different ways. Mm. We have some with louder voices than others, but you know, there's no one bad Johnny, mm. but there are many, many other kids in that room. And so we have to, in the debates, we have to say, don't let the loudest voice in the room be the only voice. We have to make sure that everybody understands how incredibly important space is for, in so many ways and how positive it is. And the other issue is you talked about mutually assured destruction. And in a sense, that theory stopped the unthinkable. Uh, to a certain degree, there are analogies in space because um, you've heard me say this on other occasions, but I always compare space to climate change. And, I, and you think, okay, climate change, great challenge for the world. Uh, in the shortish term, who's going to suffer the most in climate change? It's the poorer countries, the least developed countries the small island states. Mm. You know, over time, of course, we all suffered greatly, but the greatest impact in the earliest stages is to the, less, the smaller countries, the poorer countries, the less developed countries. And I generalise, of course, but you get the idea. In space, because the more powerful countries have the greatest infrastructure, the greatest reliability on space, dependency on space, they're also the most vulnerable. So 
in case of irresponsible behaviour in space, they themselves will be the first to suffer, the, the larger countries, all of them. Mm. And so this talk about Space Force and about space being, you know, people just conceive of space using this well-worn mantra of contested, congested and competitive. We've heard it, you've heard it a thousand times, right? Yes. It's beautiful, you know, three C's, it sounds so poetic, but it's nonsense if you think that is the only way we conceive of space. Space is con- should be conceived of in so many other ways. But if you start talking like that, and talking yourself into this idea that we've got to maintain our strength in space. And wait a minute, we're strong in space, which means we're vulnerable in space, which means, hey, we have to defend ourselves, which means, hey, we can't let the other guy do it, which means, hey, we have to destroy them. As you say, it's self, it, it could perhaps be self-fulfilling, but ultimately, as you quite rightly say, it's self-defeating as well. Mm. And so even though there are many voices that say things that you and I will disagree with in terms of the way they portray space as this war-fighting domain, in the end, we have to listen to all the voices and, and common sense, whatever that means, has to prevail. You know, if we don't all, if we don't all play the game, you know, we can be tough, we can be strategic, we can be political, but if we don't all play the game, then at some point we ruin it for all of us. None of us can play the game in space. And therefore we miss out on this incredible, amazing place in so many ways. It's inspirational, it's scientific, it's exploratory, but it also is the future of humanity and the way we live. And so in the end, there's that balance. And our, you know, what I see in, in my small way is to try to at least say to people, wait a minute, there are many voices about mm. space and we need to listen to them all. And in the end, if the decision makers decide they want to be irresponsible, well, in the end, they're the decision makers, but it's up to us to say, before you do that, you have to listen to every voice in that room and not just the loudest voice. So I completely agree. You say it far more eloquently than I, but I think we're, you know, we may not agree on everything, but I think on this point, we totally agree. No, yeah. I think so. Um, and I think also that that, the the thing you say about having to say no we need to listen to every voice in the room before we make decisions on this is so important and something that Australia I think needs to be doing I, I really think that that's the role that Australia can play in a major way we've done it in many other areas um, and that is to say well some countries, you know, the loud voice in the room might have a view of space as being one particular thing because it means that to them. But space is a socially constructed zone too. So every voice in that room actually makes up what space is. Exactly. Um, and so making sure that every voice in the room gets equally heard will influence how we think about space and therefore what actions we take. Space is perhaps becoming militaristic in the way that countries think about it or it has been for a long time but there's always I think a risk that Australia becomes opportunistic when it comes to the militarism side of things Um, there's a lot of focus at the moment on developing technology exporting that technology selling it if at all possible and I worry a bit and I'd be really interested to hear your views on this that you know if we're on the one hand running around saying 
let's not weaponize space, let's keep it peaceful, let's do science together. And on the other hand, our space agency is sort of spruiking all of the products that we can sell in terms of, uh, you know, CubeSats. Well, on this side, we're worried about debris, but on this side, we're selling all of these nanosats, and isn't it exciting we can launch so many of them at once? Things like that, the, the one on, you know, saying one thing on one hand and doing something else on the other hand may undermine that process. Um, I think that that is something that does worry me as I look sort of forward to the next few decades in space. But what would your view be on it? Yeah, I agree. I mean, and you, you really raise the complexity of the issues involved. So I've done a lot of work for quite a number of governments, for example, on uh, how to either draft or reform their national space because as space becomes more commercialised, more and more citizens and, and corporates get involved in space and, and countries need to, con control is the wrong word, need to regulate that in an appropriate way, particularly under their obligations. And, and every country I deal with, and I've just been appointed by another country in Northern Europe now, and I, I exactly, you say the same thing to, to each of them, because they're all asking the same questions about what is the most appropriate framework to suit us. But the answer to that will be different for every country. In the end, it's a balance. It's a balancing act, and this will depend, therefore, on so many factors. But the balance is pretty easy to state. The application of it will depend on domestic factors that are different in every country. And that balance is, on the one hand, uh, encouraging responsible behaviour, in, uh, adhering to international principles that virtually every country um, is bound by uh, under the treaties and under general international law and working out a way that deals with space for the future. All of those are great things. On the other hand, uh, encouraging commerce and industry within the country, encouraging entrepreneurship. Mm. Uh, many countries would say national security interests. Uh, and a whole range of other things. And, and it's a balancing act. And the appropriate level of regulation will depend on who the country is, what its culture is, what its political views are, what its risk profile is, uh, what sort of activities, what people want, what inspires them about space. Uh, and even those headings are very different for every country. So Australia, we... Um, have been involved in space for a long time. We were a major space player, if that's the right word, in the very early days through Woomera, which was the second busiest spaceport in the world in the 50s and 60s, in the 60s in particular. Uh, people would say, historically, that space, if you like, pardon the pun, fell off the radar for Australia. And it's sort of been rediscovered in the last two decades and particularly in the last four or five years. And uh, we now have an agency established. And as I said in, in the intro, I, um, I had the privilege of working uh, with the expert review group, which essentially formulated a lot of the ideas upon which the agency is based. And I worked with Megan Clark, who's now the CEO of the, of the agency. She's fantastic. But mm. she has said publicly that our agency is the most industry-focused agency in the world. And many will say, and I will agree, that's a positive aspect. But there is a view 
that is a reflection on the balance of these issues, that space is about industry and commerce, it's about generating revenues, it's about creating jobs, it's about um, those sorts of issues. It's, of course, the agency is also very conscious of a range of other things. But, you know, Megan um, and the industry uh, and the agency is geared around developing the Australian space industry. And indeed, the expert review group that I was a part of that ultimately um, helped with the formulation of the agency um, was set up to work out what our space industry capabilities in Australia are and should be going down the track. So that's a particular view of space. Mm. Um, and it's true to say that the greatest percentage of spend on space is still done by defence. And so if you want to create an industry and you want to find customers who will pay money, then some elements of that industry will ultimately and inevitably be geared towards defence and military aspects. And so that's a view we have to take. That's a view you have to take. But <clears throat> that's, not, that's not just about space. It's about many other things. You look at, the, you know, one of the biggest trades in the world is the armaments trade. Mm. And when you have, look at the Saudi Arabia situation with Khashoggi, and I, I won't form a view about where I stand, but you'll recall that the United States made a strong statement saying, we've just got this huge arms deal with the Saudis and in a sense that tailors the way we react to the Khashoggi. Now it's not for me to be judgmental, obviously I think you would probably guess my views but that's not for this program. But, but if you take a view that that is appropriate, you know, building an industry that to a certain degree is, a, is geared around defence, well that's a decision that you make. Some other countries look at space in the way they develop their industries in different ways, science mm. and uh, exploration or other areas of commerce that don't necessarily revolve around defence. But Space mining being space a classic mining. example. But space mining itself um, has some particular challenges to it. Mm. Um, and we can talk about that, of course. But, but in the end, it's, it's, it's choosing the right balance. And you mentioned about the small sats, on the one hand worrying about space debris, on the other hand encouraging small satellites, and we have this talk about massive constellations, and people say, don't worry, don't worry, they, they will deorbit very quickly, and there's a whole range of issues around that and some guidelines. But again, that's a balance. You know, I've always, when I reviewed the Australian law, I, and, and have done for some other countries, I've always tried to say, okay, this, is, this might be appropriate for what you want, but we should always encourage responsible behaviour. Mm. And we should always be cognizant of the fact that short-term, uh, if you like, gains in developing new types of industries might not necessarily reflect longer-term advantages for us and indeed the way that we deal with space. And so... Uh, I haven't answered your question because there is no answer. Mm. Every country will view it differently. Indeed, when when I was involved in talking to governments, and you, you, we all think government speaks with one voice, and then you 
walk around, I'm sure you've done the same, but you walk around any country in the world and you go to the different government departments and you start talking to them about space. Within the government, there are five or six different ways that space is used. You know, you talk to defence. They don't want industry. They don't want to make it easier for private enterprise because for them, it's about the national security and military aspects. Mm. You walk down the corridor to the Department of Industry in any country, they say space is about industry and commerce. You walk down the, depart- the road to the Foreign Affairs Department of any country, they will say, well, space is about our international obligations and being a, a, a responsible international um, citizen, if you like. Mm-hmm. You walk down to finance and they will say, well, space is about spending appropriately and finding a priority about how we spend our money compared to the, all the other. So it's very difficult to, in the end, find one view of space. But in the end, that's what you've got to do. And countries have got to do that in determining the way they move forward. And well, in the end, if you don't decide it, it will be decided for you. A- absolutely. The sense that others will perceive things in certain ways and things have actions or reactions, even if they're not intended. But there are, there are opportunities, for, for mm. example, for Australia, but for other countries to, to look at space as stewards stewardship. Um, That's a principle that uh, exists in different contexts. But what I mean by that is two ways. You you create the way you administer and regulate space in a way that is fluid and ongoing and adaptive. But secondly, you accept that in whatever you do and encourage, you have a a greater responsibility than the immediate responsibility of maximizing the the sovereign purse or mm. whatever it is and and I think there are real opportunities for Australia sure we all want to create industry we all want to make revenues we all want to have better lives we all want the Australian economy to do well of course we accept all of that but there's also an opportunity for leadership for us and not only us, other countries, but certainly for us, there's leadership for us in the space mining debate that you mentioned, um, both from a legal perspective, but from a technological perspective, from a political perspective, there's, there's opportunities. There's opportunities in terms of the way we... Um, what are the appropriate space activities? Uh, should we decide that we should do anything in space because we can? The idea, for example, of uh, utilising technology and resources to create uh, love hotels in space. It's, a, it's a, an extreme example. Sure. But, but it, again, it's, this is not a, being um, a prudish or judgmental, but notwithstanding that we're getting better and better at what we do in space, we still have limited resources and limited, and should we be spending part of that precious resources and also utilising part of precious space for love hotels um, or, or whatever. And again, I apologise, it's a bit of a silly example. Oh, no, I love it. It's but, great. Yeah. But, you <laughs> know, Mir, Mir, before it went down, a Japanese consortium really wanted to buy Mir and create it into a honeymoon hotel. Okay, good luck to them. It didn't happen. And, and do we want humans in space, human settlements? Well, we've had lots of discussion about humans settlements on Mars although uh, I think Mars is so far off, but the Moon is perhaps, in my opinion at least, is, is far more realistic. And it, wouldn't it be great and exciting and it's part of the frontier and we're all inspired by this, but we have to work out exactly 
why and what we want to do. You know, mm. Stephen Hawking says, said that the future of humanity is in space. If he's correct, then maybe we've got to start doing this. But I think we've, we're so sophisticated in what we can do, yet we're still at the beginning, that nobody ever asks the questions, sit back and say, well, what are the appropriate things to do in space? You know, it's, it, it's a reflection for all of us. Um, shouldn't we be setting some, some guidelines, standards, whatever, that say, well, this is the way humanity, you know, with, with you know, some exceptions, because countries will do things, but this is the way we should move forward, because mm. in the end, um, it belongs to all of us. And, and we should, again, you're not going to have collective decision-making, but we should be conscious of the fact that um, of the 500 things that we'll ultimately be able to do in space, perhaps we should be only doing 300 of them or something like that and concentrating our efforts on that to maximise the benefits that we all get in different ways from space. Well, it brings us back to our discussion on the differences between... Um, having many regulations and then people trying to skirt the edges of them Correct. versus having a sort of an open um, a system of regulations that are more gestures, um, which reminds me very much of, um, you know, talking on the, on the commercial side of things about how space might then interact with financial interests and commercial interests because generally speaking, finance... Um, particularly after the GFC, is one area that is hugely regulated. And there are whole departments within um, big financial institutions that exist purely to know the regulations inside out so that they know how to find the ways around them. Uh, so what happens when you take a bunch of people who are trained to think in that way, which is, well, if there's no explicit regulation against it, then let's go and you let them loose on a place like space, which is this delicate balance of um, nuance and symbolism and gestures and shared understandings. It's a concerning thing for me, and particularly around the question of mining space. Do we wait until there's a problem or um, to step in and, and regulate? Or do we try and regulate in advance and accept the fact that people will find their way around those regulations? And then how does that interact with having colonies that are set up to do that mining? Or is the whole thing done by machines? In which case you still have questions of ethics because as you say, should we really be doing this in the first place? Is this something that we want to spend our resources on? What do you think? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I've just thrown a lot of things No, wow, you. everybody's scratching their heads. You're actually right. So, so the space mining debate is uh, front and centre at the moment. Uh, mm. It's uh, an issue, but it's not a new... Uh, you know this, but perhaps some of your listeners don't. It's not a new uh, debate. Uh, already in the, in the 70s, there was uh, a lot of excitement about the results of analysing the, the Apollo mission samples that they brought back from the moon. They brought back, I can't remember now, maybe 200 kilos. And actually, the Americans were very generous in sharing that around the scientific community. And there was a lot of excitement, and indeed we have a treaty um, in the late 70s that explicitly deals with this issue of 
let's if we are going to exploit the hard resources of space, mining asteroids and the moon, at that stage it really was thinking about the moon, but we've, the debate's gone more broadly, then how do we do it? And, and you and I know historically that treaty for a whole bunch of political, essentially political reasons, was not heavily subscribed to, but it was, it came about at a period where uh, similar debates were going on in other domains, like the law of the sea about deep sea mining, and essentially there was this uh, ideological, philosophical divide between the richer industrialised countries who potentially had the technological wherewithal to do these activities and other countries, largely former colonies, who, because of the legal way we characterise the deep seabed and the high seas and the legal way we characterise space as, in a sense, belonging to us all, I'm being simplistic, but that's how we sort of characterise it, those colonies, those former colonial countries and smaller countries um, didn't like the idea that the larger countries could go and exploit these resources without there being some mechanism for sharing. Mm. So all of that happened and politically that led to a whole range of difficulties in terms of the treaties. But this space mi- but the point of that is the space mining debate is not a new it's not a new argument. It's come back again because there are many companies that have claimed that they're developing their technology. Interestingly, um, as a side point, a couple of the major ones have recently gone bankrupt. Uh, in the United States, so uh, others may take take their place over time, but uh, the arguments about this is happening we've got to we've got to develop rules now, and if we don't, um, countries will go ahead on their own is as is often the case in debates about space and other areas where technology moves complete overreaction and uh, ignoring the complexity. Space is mm. hard. Even though it works, it's hard and complex, and things take a long, long, long time to develop. But let's assume the technology does exist down the track. It does give rise to major challenges. We now uh, are confronted by industry who talk about not billions of dollars, but trillions of dollars. Uh, in terms of the potential value of somehow commercial uh, harnessing these hard resources in some commercial way, mm. um, and of course, nothing attracts uh, interest more than the potential for a new frontier with pots of gold <coughs> at the end. I, as I said, I think it's a long way off, but but we have to be careful about the way we talk about space and the way we get excited about that. Uh, Because in the end, uh, we have to understand everything has to be put in context, and the context of space is that it is different, as we've discussed, that we have decided as a humanity that it has certain characteristics in terms of the way we view it, culturally, spiritually, legally. And by suggesting that all of a sudden we can mine these asteroids or or the moon. I mean, imagine looking at the moon. There is a film called Moon um, that was directed, and I've forgotten his name, but directed by David Bowie's son. Mm. Um, I really commend it to you and your listeners. Mm -hmm. Um, Really great movie called Moon, and it's about mining on the moon. And, uh, And it's got some human issues to it, but these massive machines on the moon. Imagine, not that it would happen, 
But imagine looking up at the moon and seeing scars on the moon. How that would affect us culturally and, and philosophically and and we would it would mean that we would start thinking about space in different ways. And I think that's really dangerous. It's really dangerous because when you start talking about money in those terms, remembering, as I said, that this is not going to happen for a long time, if at all. Mm. But if, if you start talking about money, that nothing, nothing excites people more. And uh, industry is saying, come on, let's go, let's go, let's go, recognising that, that it's not going to happen for a long time. And we just have to be careful that that doesn't encourage behaviour that is antithetical to the way we view space as something that collectively we have an interest in and deliberately agreed right from the beginning, even by the United States and the Soviet Union, is not subject to the concepts of colonisation because colonisation on Earth largely is about resources and has been historically, is not subject to those same sort of forces. So we have to be really, really careful about that. And talking about trillions of dollars is really... um, You're a former investment banker, I'm a former investment banker. It's a way... It's it's a way of encouraging investment. Mm. And the way I view it is it's encouraging... I'm from industry, I say this is going to happen, look at all the money... Um, you in, then you get the investment to see whether you really actually can do it or not, whether it is going yes. to happen. So uh, we just have to be careful in the way we talk about it. But my view is on the space mining thing, if ever it gets to the point where industry can do this in a safe way or whatever, at that point I really do think that... the, the the main countries, but then followed by everyone else, will actually sit down and mm. work out the rules because that issue in particular is so overarching in the way that we would l- change our perceptions of space that it's way, 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 way too big for one country or two countries or three countries to be doing it, let alone one or two or three companies. Yes. I- I'm not sure we'll get to that point in my lifetime. We may well get to that point... And then we just have to sit down and work out the appropriate framework. But I'm convinced we can do that. We've done it with other natural resources in space, like the geostationary orbit, which is this incredible, valuable, incredibly valuable natural resource. Mm. Same arguments. It, in a sense, was part of this common heritage that we all own. The larger countries started using it. The smaller countries said, wait, wait for us. And in the end, through you know, some fierce negotiations, we now have a system which works, which manages the exploitation in a way that is quote-unquote fair. Nothing's entirely fair, Mm. but at least it gives rights to everybody. And I think in the end, we've got to find some way of doing this, recognising that very few countries will ever be able to do this space mining, but we still have to recognise that it belongs, in a sense, to all of us, and we've got to find a way through. And I think we will. Well, yes, colonisation, as you say, is largely about resources. But the problem with colonisation is largely about sort of structuralized inequalities, if Absolutely. I could make up a word. Um, and when people get excited about trillions of dollars in space mining, you've got to remember that there has to be a buyer and there has to be a seller. 
and the seller might make trillions of dollars, but the buyer has to be able to afford to buy these things. So we've got a limited pool of potential buyers who have a limited pool of resources. And I think the concerns that the Outer Space Treaty and the Moon Treaty had about avoiding that inequality, um, whether it was economic or otherwise, and making sure that space was a common heritage for mankind in order to, to do that to avoid conflict have to be front and centre of any kind of um, regulation of commercial activities in space. Because it's not about stopping people from going out and making money and so on. It's just about making sure that we're not setting ourselves up for um, massive structural problems as a world community again. Absolutely. I mean, we, we, even though we don't hear it as much, you talk about the digital divide, right? Mm. The internet, in a sense, is a, I don't know how you legally categorise it, and we struggle with it. Yeah. But, but the analogy is there in that the internet haves are able to become stronger and richer, and the internet have nots, and there still is, a third of the pop world's population that doesn't have any, any access to the internet. And interestingly enough, some st space may help to alleviate that to a certain mm. degree, some uses of space. Um, so the divide, the, 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 the utilisation of this, this thing we call the internet actually exacerbates inequalities if it's not done properly. And your point is absolutely valid that if we're not careful the utilisation of these hard resources will exacerbate inequalities because buyer and seller will be wealthy countries mm. it, and they say, you know, they have to be proven right, but they say participating in that sort of activity will allow them to do more and more things, which you would think is to their advantage. So we have to be careful that, that it doesn't exacerbate divides further. I mean, mm. nothing is perfect. We know that uh, there are space haves and space have-nots now and and but but we don't want to make it even more stark and i think your point's absolutely right that if we don't do it properly if it, if it happens at all we actually run the risk of making things even more divisive mm. than more unified and i think in the end that's to everybody's disadvantage we're in furious agreement. Oh, I know. What can we disagree on? I'm not sure. But all of these topics are important. Uh, yeah. Oh, and, don't get um, me wrong. Yeah. I think they're hugely important. And the fact that we agree is actually fine. You know, people go on and on. I used to do debating and teach debating, and debating's great. But ultimately, reaching a consensus is what it's all about. Yeah, but I so. hope it's not too boring for you. I mean, we should be arguing and going, what a load of rubbish and all of that. But on this point, I mean, I'm sure there are lots of people who will listen to us, particularly on the the war the war fighting domain or the fact that perhaps we should stop and smell the roses a bit and mm. work out what we're going to do a lot of people will disagree with that oh absolutely but the, the but, debate will, will happen yeah and and, and i'm yeah. sure you will hear from many listeners who say what an idiot that guy was oh, that's right i'll direct them straight to you <laughs> <laughs> and i'll direct them back to you because we're in agreement <laughs> Stephen, I think we should finish because I suspect that you have to make dinner or something. <laughs> I probably do. <laughs> um, but thank you so much. Oh, you're it's welcome. It's been a really wonderful chat and hopefully thank listeners you. enjoy it as much as I have, which is a lot. My brain feels very stretched in all sorts of interesting directions. Um, so it's really been fantastic. Thank you very much. Thank you. And thank you uh, for 
just being such an incredible ambassador as you are for all things good about space because you are and listeners she's great okay. <laughs> thank, thank you, you. listening to Space Junk. If you would like to find out more about space law or the history, philosophy and sociology of science, you can follow me on Twitter at at a handmer. That's A for Annie, H-A-N-D-M-E-R. Thanks for listening.